Good morning, everyone. So good to see you at church this morning. We're going to get into the Word of God. Uh, we've been in our series on the Beatitudes. Uh, today, I think we're week six of our series on the Beatitudes. We're looking at blessed is the pure in heart, for they will see God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your Word. It's living, it's active, it has the power to change us. Lord, and we do desire, O oh God, to be transformed by your Word. Lord, we desire to be a people who steward the very presence of God. Lord, we desire to be a church where the King of glory comes in. And so I pray, Lord God, form us and make us into a people, O oh God, that worship your name and give you true pleasure. And we pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Uh, just this week, I was cooking. I was cooking dinner, as you do, and I was cooking and simultaneously thinking. I was cooking and thinking. In fact, I would say I was doing more thinking than I was cooking. The body was cooking. The mind was thinking. It was thinking about all the things I needed to do this week. It was thinking about my to-do list. It was thinking about what I was concerned about when all of a sudden, in the midst of my thinking and cooking, suddenly another sense engaged and I began to smell a smell. It wasn't a good smell. It was a bad smell. It was a burning smell. And so I gaze over and I try to find the source of the burning, move a few things around when suddenly I see on the element something that is like smoldering, right? And so I think to myself, oh, well, I found it now. I can stop worrying about the source of the burning smell. And I kept cooking, cooking and thinking. And I finished my meal. And afterwards, I was finished cooking. I was clearing up. And as I was clearing up, I found a tea towel that was totally blackened and charred. You don't know the story. So what I'm trying to tell you is this week I almost burnt down the house. <laughs> and this is my public confession. <laughs> but I found this blackened and charred tea towel that I had no idea was like, you know, on fire. And I began to freak out because I was like, oh my gosh, like I could have burnt down the house. And so this is why I'm only publicly telling Don and I'm <laughs> sure. I'm sure we'll talk about it in the car on the way home. <laughs> Who wants to have lunch with me today? <laughs> because how many people know that when your focus is divided, you don't see things clearly, right? You know, we all know this because uh, when we're looking at our phone or we're, you know, scrolling through Instagram or scrolling through YouTube and someone is talking to us, we'll say things like, yeah, yeah, I'm listening. Yeah, yeah, I'm paying attention, but how many people know that where there's divided focus, you don't see clearly, you don't hear clearly, you don't take everything in. And this is kind of what Jesus is saying in this beatitude this week. And in, in Matthew 5 verse 8, he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And the key phrase here is pure in heart. What does pure in heart mean? Firstly, you've got to understand that when he's talking about 
pure in heart, he's not talking about something that's on the external. He's not talking about an external purity or an external rule keeping, an external keeping of the rules. That's what the scribes and the Pharisees are doing in Jesus' day and age. And Jesus doesn't want anything to do with people who are just performing on the outside and their hearts are far from him. When Jesus says pure in heart, what he's talking about is having an undivided loyalty to God, a single-minded loyalty to God that defines everything that you do, every decision you make, every thought you think. He's talking about an undivided heart. Oh, excuse me. What pure of heart means is that you are undivided in your loyalty, undivided in your devotion, undivided in your commitment to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Because how many people know that when you're not divided, you see, you see clearly. See, I've heard it said about the scripture that the pure of heart see God because God is the only thing the pure of heart desire to see. How many people have heard about the principle in reading scripture that Scripture interprets Scripture. What I'm going to do to unpack this beatitude in Matthew 5 is that I'm going to go to another Scripture, another Scripture which talks about the importance of purity in heart in order to unpack the Scripture. And the reason I'm doing this is this. Like imagine one day you're in your home and the person that you live with comes home and the first thing that they announce as they walk through the door is, I want chicken. Imagine they just walk through the door and announce, I want chicken. How would you go about understanding such a strange statement like that? Would you think, I know what that means. They want to have a pet chicken. We need to have a chicken coop in the back. They want a pet chicken. Or would you understand or interpret this conversation in light of the previous conversation that you had with them when you asked them, do they want chicken or beef for dinner, right? You understand this conversation in the light of the previous conversation that you've had with them. Now we apply this principle to the Word of God. When you hit a scripture that you don't understand, when you hit something where you feel like you don't have the whole meaning, what you do with this scripture is you go to the rest of scripture in order to understand what you're reading. Scripture interprets scripture. One scripture is not an isolated conversation. It is part of a whole revelation, a whole sweep of scripture. And so that's what we're going to do today as we look at Matthew 5. We're going to go to a famous psalm which talks about the link between personal purity and the presence of God. It's Psalm 24. Let me read it for you. It says this, The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For He founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord and who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands, and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. So lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, 
that the King of glory might come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And so lift up you heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, that the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. The Lord bless the reading of his word. This psalm in Jewish tradition is called a processional liturgy. And what that means is it was used as worshippers would approach the temple of God to offer sacrifices and worship to God. That's an important context of this psalm. This psalm is a psalm of praise. It's a psalm of worship that would be sung, that would be called out as people approached the temple. Now what the temple is in biblical tradition is the temple is a place where the divine and the human coexist, where they dwell together. The temple is a place where God and man is together. In other words, the temple is a place where humanity sees God. And what this psalm very, very clearly shows us is that is there is a link between the personal pursuit of purity and seeing the presence of God, meeting with the presence of God, the King of glory coming in. And since the start of this year, can I just say that it has been my prayer over this church, and you've heard me say it very many times, it has been my prayer for our congregation that the King of glory would come in. That all of our preaching would end with the King of glory coming in. That all of our worship would end with the King of glory coming in. That our small groups would finish with the King of glory coming in. Because I am convinced that what our community needs to be saved is not more programs, is not more lifeless messages, is not simply more ministries. What our community needs is for the King of glory to come in. We need a move of God. And so this scripture becomes incredibly important because what it's providing us is a pathway to meeting with the presence of God, a pathway to seeing God, a pathway to the King of glory coming in. And what it shows us is that unmistakably, there is a link between you and I pursuing purity of heart and the King of glory coming in. See, this psalm is broken up into three distinct sections, three distinct, almost like stopping places. It starts with a declaration of who God is. It then talks about our response, that we should be undivided in our devotion to him. And then it ends with the King of glory coming in. Isn't it interesting that a psalm that finishes with the King of glory coming in and is all about our personal response of purity and loyalty doesn't start with purity. It starts with a pronouncement of who God is. What does it say? It says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all those who dwell in it, for he founded it upon a seas and established it on the mountains. It starts with a declaration of who God is because friend, you cannot hope to be undivided in your pursuit of God if you have a wrong understanding of who God is. If you're in this place and you have been struggling to have single-minded commitment to God, if you've been struggling to have single-minded 
loyalty to God. Friend, you don't just try harder to have purity. You don't try harder to have loyalty. You remember who it is that you're about to meet with. See, that's how this psalm starts. It's like, hey, before you meet with the King of glory, remember who it is that you're about to meet with. See, it starts right from verse 1, and it uses the sacred name of God. It says, the Lord, that there is Yahweh. Yahweh is God's self-revelation to Moses as the burning bush. It means, I am who I am. He's saying, listen up, I'm the only all-sufficient one. I'm the only all-powerful one. I'm the only eternal one. And then it goes on to say that this God, this eternal, all-sufficient, all-powerful one, He owns everything. He owns the entire world, that which we see and that which we don't see. He owns all the world and all the people who live in it. And then it tells you why. Why? Because he created it. He can claim ownership of it because he's the one who breathed it into existence. He can claim ownership of it because it was his idea in the first place that he had the power to create. See, it says before you even meet with him, remember who it is you're meeting with. You are meeting with the creator, the sustainer, the owner of all things. You're about to meet with Yahweh. I am who I am. And it's interesting because when we talk about that, the response that that should evoke in you is fear. But the holy kind of fear, right? Fear, when I say fear, I mean awe. I mean wonder. I mean reverence. When we talk about the one who is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Almighty God, it's meant to evoke in us a wonder and an awe and a reverence. And it does so in a way that just speaking of Jesus solely as teacher or savior or friend doesn't always do. You see, if we're going to meet with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, if we're going to be the type of church where truly the King of glory comes in, then we need to worship God in the truth of who He is, not a picture of God that we're comfortable with. It's an amazing story in Exodus 32. God rescues the the Israelites out of slavery and He brings them to Himself at Mount Sinai says that he appears in glory and in splendor, in fire and in thunder on the mountain. And the response of the Israelites is fascinating. They're intimidated by him. They're scared of him. They don't want to come close to him. And so instead they wait while Moses goes up the mountain and while Moses is gone, they demand that Moses make for them a golden calf out of their earrings. And Aaron does, excuse me, Aaron, not Moses. Aaron does this for him. And this is what it says in Exodus 32, verse four to five. It says, he took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. They said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And this is what Aaron said. He said, when he saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, get this, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. Now that is the sacred name of God. That's Yahweh. In other words, they didn't want to create and worship 
a different God. That's not what this passage is about. The Israelites still wanted to worship Yahweh. They just wanted to shrink Yahweh down to a form that they were comfortable with. They still wanted to be the people of God. They still wanted to worship Yahweh, but not in the way that he revealed himself because that way intimidated him. And so they said, instead of worshiping him like this, let's shrink him down to something that we are familiar and comfortable with, a God that looked like the gods of the surrounding nations. And I wonder how often we do the same thing. We confess to be people of God, but we have shrunk this great almighty God into a form and a shape that we ourselves are comfortable with. Let me tell you today that worship that starts with golden calves will not welcome the King of glory in. Churches that worship golden calves will not live to welcome the King of glory in. Homes that worship golden calves will not welcome the King of glory in. Disciples who worship golden calves will not welcome the King of glory in. See, if we're going to be a people who see the King of glory come in, we need to be a people who are prepared to worship Him in spirit and in truth, in the truth of who He is, the truth of who He's revealed Himself to be. Because if we worship a golden calf, we will not see the King of glory come in. I challenged our interns just recently. I said, listen, if the Scriptures you pick if the messages you preach, if the prayers that you pray and the songs that you sing are determined by the comfort of the people, you are not leading the people to the King of glory. You're leading them to a golden calf. See, if we're going to be people who welcome the King of glory in, we must also be people who are prepared to worship Him in the truth of who He has revealed Himself to be. He is God Almighty, the owner, the creator, the sustainer of everything that we see and we don't see. He is the great I Am, the first and the last, the all-sufficient one. He is El Shaddai. He is God Almighty. And when we reveal this, when we see this, it automatically begs a second question. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? Who could come into the presence of such a holy, amazing, almighty God? And the answer is simple. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who has not lifted up his soul to an idol or sworn by what is false. The hill of the Lord is another picture of a meeting place between God and man. But very interestingly, the temple in Jerusalem was literally on a hill. It was literally on a mountain. And to this day, you can go to it. They call it Temple Mount. And so the picture is this, that the worshippers are approaching the temple of God to meet with God and offer sacrifices. And as they are approaching the temple, a call comes because the psalm is a call and response. The call comes, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And the response is, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. And archaeological evidence shows us that there were water basins that scattered along the path that the pilgrims took as they went towards the temple so that they could physically purify their hands as they approached the presence of God. See, when we come to this, I don't want you to overthink this because it's easy to excuse ourselves out of this. Old 
ultimately there is only one who was pure enough to ascend the hill of the Lord. Only one who was pure enough to climb Calvary's hill. He stretched out his arm. He died for all of us so that we could have his righteousness, so that we could come into the presence of God. There's only one. And he's already done it for us. We receive his righteousness on, on, because of his sacrifice. But I do think that more than that, we do need to see that it's not just us accepting Christ's righteousness on our behalf. We need to endeavor as disciples to have undivided hearts. Because there's power, such power and purity. I want to read to you a quote from a guy called Jeremy Riddle, who's a worship leader in the United States. And This is what he says about purity. He says, I've long understood the power of purity. Something can only be as powerful as it is pure. Some would argue that love is the greatest power, but even love will only be as powerful as it is pure. Purity may not be the flashiest thing or the coolest, but when purity comes onto the scene, it arrests the room. It stops the room. It strikes the deepest chord. He says the same is true in the context of worship. Pure worship will always be the most powerful kind and expose all lesser offerings. For instance, he says, you can take a worshiping people at a person with acoustic guitar at a band, at a stage, lights, screens, powerful mountain imagery, lots of fog, and wrap the best sonic experience money can buy around it. And you will certainly make it louder and more visually stimulating, but you won't make it more powerful. Because the power is in the purity of the offering. It's in the undivided heart which says, God, you, and only you. See, this undivided devotion is costly. It costs us the world. It costs us our allegiance to the world. It costs us our devotion to anything else but the King of glory. But friend, true worship is always costly. What did David say? He says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord that which costs me nothing. Let me tell you what undivided devotion costs us. It costs us our allegiance to all the things that were ultimately empty anyway. It's very interesting. Verse 4b tells us that the one who can see the hill of the Lord is the one who has not lifted up his soul to an idol or sworn by what is false. The New King James says sworn deceitfully, but other translations put it sworn by what is false. And the soul in the Hebrew is the word nepias. And a better rendering of nepias is self or essential being. It's not just talking about the soul and it's not just talking about the mind. The nepias is much more than mind or soul. It's the essential, integrated, the entirety of our being that is sustained by the very breath of God itself. And so to lift up one's nepias is to offer one's deepest commitment. It's to offer the entirety of yourself. It's to offer the depth of who you are, undivided and totally to the one true God. This 
phrase is actually only used, to lift up one's nephews, is only used actually three times in Scripture, all in Psalms. And every usage outside of this one is only talking about what you offer to Yahweh, the offering of your deepest commitment, your highest loyalty, your undivided soul, mind, strength, and spirit to the only one who is worthy of such an offering. And actually one of the places that it's used is the beginning of Psalm 25. And commentators have wondered if the reason that it's used there to lift up one's song to Yahweh in Psalm 25 is to offset this picture in Psalm 24 of the fact that people lift up their souls, the entirety of their being, to lesser offerings. They sometimes lift them up to what is false. And interestingly, that word false, a better translation is empty. Because friend, have you ever offered all of yourself to something that proved to you ultimately empty? Have you ever offered your deepest commitment to something that in your experience proved unable to satisfy complete, fulfill, or to save you? Have you ever lifted up your soul to something that was not just false, but devoid of any ability to save you? See, there's a greater, a greater invitation that is happening here, that we wouldn't just lift up our souls, the entirety of our being, to empty things, but that we'd be able to offer up the entirety of our being to the King of Kings. And then finally it says, lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, that the King of glory might come in. Who is the Lord? He is the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. This is the King of glory. This last picture, this last section, suddenly becomes quite strange because We've had this picture of pilgrims going towards the temple, but now we find that the presence of God isn't in the city, it's outside the city. It's about to come into the city. And the reason that this picture is like this is because that this psalm was written to commemorate when David brought the Ark of the Covenant back into the city of God. When David brought the presence of God back into Jerusalem, the city of God. And so the picture that's being painted here is of a herald who is standing before the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant. And he turns to the walls of the city and to the city he cries, lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, that the King of glory might come in. And then from the city, the response comes to the herald. They say, who is the king of glory? And the herald pronounces the very one who's coming into the city. He says, it's the Lord, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. This is the king of glory. And so then he cries again. So lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors that the King of Glory might come in. And the fascinating thing about this is that there's a play on words happening in the Hebrew. Lift, 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 lift. 
And the thing that we need to understand is that the very thing that opens up the ancient gates, the very thing that throws open the doors of the city, the very thing that throws open the doors of the church is that we would lift up our deepest commitment to Yahweh. That we would lift up the depths of our nephews, the depths of our soul to the only one who's worthy of entering in. You see, the incredible thing here is there is a role being played. The role of the herald who stands before the presence of God. Their job is to call to the people of God, to cry to the city, to cry to those who are within. Will you give undivided devotion? Will you lift up your heads? Will you lift up the gates so that the King of glory would come in? See, if you are a follower of Christ, you need to understand that you should play the part of the herald who stands before the presence of God and who cries to the people of God that half-hearted devotion is not enough. Lukewarm commitment is not enough. Divided loyalty is not enough. If we are going to make way so that the King of glory comes in, we must lift up our heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, that the King of glory might come in. And so I wonder today if I could play the part of the herald and you could play the part of the city of God. I wonder today if I could play the part of the one who is announcing that the King of glory is coming back again. You know, they say that this psalm was the one that was being sung the day Jesus made his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And many commentators wonder, will this be the refrain that the saints of God sing when the King of glory comes on the clouds with fire, when the King of glory comes again. The band can join me. And so I wonder today if I could play the part of the herald and you could play the part of the city of God. And what I mean by that is simple. We're desperate for a move of God We're desperate for the King of glory to come in. We're desperate for the King of glory who is strong and mighty and mighty in battle. We're desperate for the King of glory who is the Lord of hosts. We are desperate that the King of glory might come in. And so could I play the part of the herald and cry to you, would you lift up your heads, O you gates, And would you be lifted up, you everlasting doors, that the King of glory might come in. And you would say, but who is this King of glory? And I would herald that He is the Lord, the Lord strong, the Lord mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And so I cry to you again, Would you lift up your heads, O you gates, 
in. And you would say, who is this King of glory? And I would say, he is the Lord. The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. He alone is the King of glory. The time for undivided commitment and loyalty is now. And so right now, in the name of Jesus, we offer up everything. We offer up everything. We offer up the deepest commitment the entirety of our being to you alone, King of glory, in the hopes that as we lift up all, surrender all, abandon all, that King of glory, you would come in. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. If you're here this morning and you're saying, yeah, I've been undivided. I've been divided, actually, in my allegiance to God. Your starting point this morning is Jesus, to give him your heart, your undivided attention, your undivided heart. And so I want to give you that opportunity this morning. If you're here and you're saying, yes, that's me. I've been far away from the Lord. I've walked away from Jesus. But this morning... I want to be undivided in my pursuit, undivided in my allegiance to Jesus. I want to give you this opportunity. You need to know today that the God who created this entire universe, this entire world, is the same God who created you. He created you on purpose. He created you for a purpose. He created you to come into loving fellowship with Him. He created you to enjoy a loving relationship with Him. But the Bible talks about this thing that keeps us disconnected from God that thing is called sin. Sin is walking in disobedience to God. Sin is doing things our own way. And the Bible says that the wages, the consequence of that sin is death. But you see, my friend, it didn't end there because God in His grace sent His only Son, Jesus, to die on the cross so that you and I didn't have to pay that penalty for sin. And so right now, the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed, believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And so my friend, right now, God is extending to you his grace, forgiveness for your past, a new life right now, and a hope for your future and eternal life with him in heaven. But we must turn away from sin, repent, turn from sin, and turn to Jesus, put our trust in Jesus, put our hope in Jesus, put our faith in Jesus. And so if that's you today and you're saying, yes, I want to give my heart to Jesus, I want you to lift your hand all across this building this morning. If that's you and you're saying, yes, I want to give my heart to Jesus, thank you, I see that hand. Thank you, I see that hand. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I see that hand. I want you to repeat this prayer after me. I need you to know this prayer doesn't save you. Jesus Christ saves you. This prayer is just an expression of you putting your faith and your hope in Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and you rose again. I turn from my sins 
and I turn to you and I invite you to come into my heart and into my life. I want to trust you and follow you as my Lord and Saviour. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's put our hands together. Celebrate everyone that made that decision for Jesus.